Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we speak with Arturo Rodriguez, former president of the United Farm Workers, on the pilgrimage from Delano to Sacramento for, can you believe it, basic union rights. Also, we'll rebroadcast our interview with the current United Farm Worker president, Teresa Romero. And we will rebroadcast our powerful interview from last night with Camelo Perez-Bustillo about the violence happening at the border and a lot more. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast live today from San Francisco and Los Angeles over the Pacifica Radio Network. We are happy to have you along, and we are honored. It's been a little while, but we are honored to welcome back to these airwaves a good friend of this show, Arturo Rodriguez. He's the former president. Hello? Yes, I'm here. Good, good. Uh, just saying that uh, you are the former president of the UFW, but uh, that hasn't stopped you, Arturo Rodriguez, from um, getting on the march. Uh, and why don't we start right there? Uh, are you surprised here in 2022 you're still marching with the farm workers for basic organiz- organizing rights? What's up? Well, yeah, no. You know, it's very unfortunate and it's very disappointing that with this governor and this state being one of the most progressive states in the country and having as much money as they do, that they still don't want to treat farm workers with the same dignity and respect that other workers, that anybody should get. I don't care who they are in this state, especially in this state, in California. It, uh, there is just no reason for it, for them to be negated the opportunity to have a union to be able to have an opportunity to have a union free of intimidation, free of coercion, and and be able to provide their children. I mean, the governor called them essential workers when the pandemic was here, when there was fires covering the state of California, and the farm workers were out there picking our fruits and vegetables. They called them essential workers. When heat waves hit all throughout the state of California and 100 degrees plus, and the farm workers are out there harvesting our fruits and vegetables. They call them essential workers. When there's the slides take place, the mudslides and the all the other catastrophes that we experience here in California, and who's out there working and making sure that we have our food on our table? It's the farm workers. And now, again, when we have legislation that simply wants to give them the opportunity to get equality and equity with other workers and for their families here in the state, and he negates that. It's a it's a shame that farm workers have to march again another three hundred and fifty plus miles to Sacramento to make this happen. It is absolutely shocking because, in a way, you have to say that the farm workers are out there on their own doing the hardest work. This is the age of fires, of global warming, of often days. Uh, temperature that goes over 100 up to 110 even 115 this is a new world order and look at this it feels like we're back in the days of harvest of shame back in the first when the first documentary shocked the nation yeah yeah there's just no reason for it there's no reason whatsoever it's a it's a stain really on this great state of california 
it's a stain on our country that still, because farm workers are immigrants. Farm workers, the ones that are out there harvesting our fruits and vegetables, are the only ones that want to be able to do that work. And they won't uh, provide them with the basic rights. It's a real stain on our country and and especially here on this state and our governor for not willing to be willing to do the right thing. Well, let's talk about uh, it seems like the governor is getting he's starting to salivate for the chance of possibly running for president of the United States. It seems like he's trying to get his corporate ducks in order and and the farm workers don't seem to fit nicely in that uh, in that vision. If you're sitting in front of them advising him, why would you tell him it's extremely important if he wants to think about being president that he learn how to represent the people, all the people of California? Well, I think that he better think twice. If he's trying to run for president of the United States and he doesn't want to take care of the least of our hardworking families here in this state of California, the farmworking families, then shame on him. He has no right. He has no right really to be a governor or a president of this great nation if he can't really stand up for what's right and what, what should be provided. I mean, it's just basic. It's just simple. It's it doesn't take much of a genius to realize that without farm workers, we don't have an agricultural industry. Without farm workers, we don't have a food on our tables. We don't have the food security that we need in this country. With all the other problems that we're facing, we need to be able to grow food here in the United States that's produced by us, that we can ensure what pesticides are used or not used on our food products, how the fruit is harvested, and to ensure that we provide our children and our families with the best quality food possible. And if we grow food here in this state and in this country, we can do that. And this is the largest agricultural state in the United States. So we should be number one. We should be looking for every way. How do we lift up farm workers? How do we demonstrate that we need not only them that are there now, but we need more of them. And we need to continue flourishing in our agricultural industry here in California and making sure that we continue to be number one and making sure that we have the labor to be able to do it, the skilled professional labor that is willing to do that work. Because we don't have folks waiting at to or standing in line, I should say, for that type of job. There's, you know, the unemployment rate is at its lowest time ever. And so there's not farm workers waiting. There's not people waiting to go work in the fields. So we better treat our immigrant workers with the dignity and respect that they deserve so they feel like we're wanted and we f- they feel like they're needed and appreciated by our governor. And if he has any aspirations to go beyond that, then he better really look towards ensuring that there's equity for the workers and the families that really sustain our food supply, sustain our agricultural industry here in the United States. Arturo, will you tell us uh, something about what I hear the, I guess, kids playing in the background. Um, could you tell yes. us a little bit about your day, what it's been like, some of the people you met, why it was uh, worthy for you to be on this walk? You know what? It's always an honor to be marching with homelessness. You just uh, see the most humble people, people that, that you know, are willing to be out in the hot sun and 100 degrees plus temperatures and the rains and the cold and the pandemic and in the fires and everything else. They're willing to go out there because they believe in what they're doing. 
and they want to do a good job for the American public. They want for the American consumer. They want to ensure that they have food on their table. So, you know, I feel honored to be able to be here. And we started today in Kalwa. We walked 19 miles. 19 miles. To, to get to Biola, where we're at right now. The community here was fantastic. They welcomed us here to their community center, served us a great meal, have fantastic music. The kids are running around, as you can hear. There's families here enjoying themselves. And the farm workers that are on the march and everybody that's marching feels like, oh, my God, these people really do care for us. And they care so, so much that they're really taking care of us and opening up their doors and, and they're opening up their homes. So we have a place to rest our, our weary bodies tonight for sure and get ready for tomorrow for another long march. And so it's really great to be here uh, with people and to see this, the spirit that's here. It's, uh, could you just take a moment, because what the farm workers are basically asking for uh, is to have the same kinds of rights to organize as other unions, as other people. How could it, how could the governor justify not making available the kinds of ability to organize, abilities to organize that other unions have? How do you explain that? I have, yeah, I have no reason, I have no, I have no real way to explain why the governor hasn't taken action. I mean, only the governor can, can say why he's refusing at this point to sign this important piece of legislation for farm workers. But more importantly, he's signing it so to ensure, to ensure that we have a secure food supply in our state and in our nation. He is signing this bill to demonstrate to farm workers that, yeah, you are essential workers, and so much so that I'm going to give you rights like everybody else has. And if you want to have a union, that's your choice. Then this is a way, this is a tool that you can use to be able to do it, using a mail-in ballot with all kinds of restrictions and all kinds of controls to make sure that it's not abused in any particular way. And that's all they're asking for. Give us a chance to do this free from intimidation and coercion that we feel like we face there at the work site when we have to vote there and foremen and supervisors uh, and contract and labor contractors and so forth have an opportunity to influence what's going on. And so, you know, hopefully this governor will see the, the emotion and the support that's really behind the farm workers in this effort and uh, do the right thing that do, he will sign this legislation and... It would be oh, nice if he sorry. signed it uh, on the second round and that, that you all didn't have to walk 330 miles to get his attention. Um, what, uh, let me, before we let you go, Arturo, um, what, what other things, say uh, the governor realizes uh, his ways, how important it is to sign on to this uh, tomorrow morning. Do are people going to still be marching? Are there other things that the farm workers need? Other assurances, other uh, uh, opportunities that other unions, other people have that they don't yet have after all this time? Well, let me say this: the, the farm workers are going to be marching tomorrow, and I'll be marching with them, along with uh, dozens of other people, really hundreds of other people that are going to be coming in from other parts of the state. Farm workers to join in with us tomorrow. So it's clear that will have the support necessary. Yeah, I mean, we should have, you know, the same 
vacation plans and the same pension plans and the medical plans and all that kind of support that other workers get. We should be able, farmers and their families should be able to earn the kinds of wages that not only sustain their families, but give them the opportunity to live life. And the governor can't do this, but we do need the help of the American consumer to ensure that we get immigration reform uh, because that is desperately needed by farm workers in this state and throughout the United States in order to give them status that they deserve and that they need in order to be able to function here uh, equally here in this country and and not only in the state of California, but but we're going to work hard to make all those kinds of things happen and to um, make sure that that farm workers don't go unnoticed. We're going to keep raising the issue. The United Farm Workers has been around now for over 60 years. This is our third major pilgrimage from the land of Sacramento. It's about 350 miles. Today it's 98 degrees here in the Fresno area. And we're not going to stop. We'll never stop marching until we feel like, okay, we are recognized. We're really recognizing the essential workers, not in words, but actual deeds and action and activities that take place. Well, we're going to be locking arms with you all the way. I know our good friend, uh, our good brother, Miguel Gavilan Molina, had to take the day off, uh, but he's been in there doing those. <laughs> I had to beat him up and had him, have him sit down, take a break. Uh, but he'll, yeah. I'm, he's like, uh, he's hard to stop. You farm workers, the farm workers are an amazing group of people. Uh, it's an honor to be able to work with them. Before I let you go, we're about to hear from the person who uh, is following your foot- footsteps, the first woman president of the UFW, Teresa Romero. How do you think she's doing? Teresa is doing fantastic. I mean, you can tell. Look, first of all, we would not have the kind of support on this particular march unless the person and the team of people, really, that we have leading the United Farm Workers for doing their work, and it's clear that that's happening. I mean, yesterday, last night, when we were when we arrived at Kalwa, uh, just before getting there, we had the bishop, uh, Bishop Brennan of Fresno, join with us and not only say a prayer to the farm workers and greet them when they got into Kalwa, but also to join with them in March. And that's incredible. I mean, that I think is the first time that we've had a Catholic bishop actually march with us in the Fresno area, which is in the heart of the San Joaquin Valley. And so clearly, Teresa's leadership and the rest of the leadership of the United Farm Workers are doing tremendous work, as they always have. Amazing. And getting the kind of support necessary to make things happen among farm workers. Thank you, Otaro Rodriguez, former president of the United Farm Workers, on the march, on the pilgrimage, shall we say, for equal rights to organize. Thanks for being with us. Stay safe. Keep walking. We'll be right by your side. Thank you so much, and thank you for all you guys do. Thank you, all your listenership, for your support, and for all the help. And make sure you call the governor's office and tell him to sign this legislation now so we can stop marching and get back to doing the work that we normally do, making sure that your food is harvested in the best way possible. Beautiful. So Beautiful. Thank you, Arturo. Everybody do their job. We'll win. Okay, take care. Bye now. Take care now.
Yeah, see, say, point. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacific Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We're now going to uh, let's just go right to that. Uh, we've got a rebroadcast, a powerful rebroadcast with the current president of the United Farm Workers. Here we go. Hello, I'm Sarah Blanco, and joining us today is Teresa Romero, president of the United Farm Workers, the UFW. She has been president for over three and a half years. She was formerly the secretary, treasurer for the UFW, and prior to joining the UFW, she managed a construction company and a law firm that helped workers with immigration and workers' compensation claims. She is an immigrant from Mexico. Teresa will be talking with us about the upcoming march from Deleno to Sacramento a pilgrimage for 24 days and 335 miles where people will walk from Deleno, California to Sacramento starting on August 3rd. And it is for California Governor Gavin Newsom's signature on AB 2183, the California Ag Labor Relations Voting Choice Act. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you very much, Sarah. Can you... Start first with maybe sharing one story, just something that's notable for you as you went along your journey to becoming the first Latina and first immigrant woman to become president of a national union in the United States. Something that comes to mind. You know, Sarah, when I um, started working for the union, I thought I was going to be working for the union for a couple of years. Uh, it was at the time where the recession started. One of the first things that goes, you know, slows down is construction. So I decided, you know, that I needed to find a job just in case. And I started working with the union thinking I'll be here for a couple of years and then I go back to my business. When I started talking to the people that we represent, when is, when I started interacting with them, when I started just understanding the challenges that they have, I thought to myself, I'm not going anywhere. And of course, I never thought I would become the president of the United United Farm Workers. I remember my dad was very ill when the union uh, decided that I would become the, the, you know, the person that was going to succeed Arturo. And I went to see them because I got a, a, a um, note from my sister that he was not responding. So I went to see them and I'm talking to him and I'm telling him, I, pro- I hope he's proud of me that that uh, the union has decided that I was going to be the president of the UFW. But my dad had no reaction. And like at three o'clock in the morning, he wakes up. He has a big smile because we all are there. He doesn't realize that he had not, he had, you know, how ill he is. And when he... When I uh, was giving him something to eat, all of a sudden he stops and he says, how come you're going to be the president of the United States? And I thought it was just so, you know, in his in his unconsciousness, he heard what he wanted to hear. I was sharing, I'm going to be the president of the UFW and I hope he's proud of me, but he heard something else. So he went to his grave thinking that I was going to be the president of the United States. 
Oh, what a beautiful story. I love hearing especially yeah. that um, that you had to ha- were able to have that conversation and also that it sounds like it's all of the good work that UFW has done and the people themselves and the workers themselves that, that really helped you uh, stay motivated to, to want to do the job. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, it's, and you know what? They still motivate me to continue to do the job. There are big, many challenges that we have to face. But knowing at the end, I, I remember another thing. There were times at the beginning when I was so frustrated and I would get home and, and I would say, why am I doing this? Why did I say yes? And one day my daughter says, why did you say yes, mom? And my immediate answer without even thinking about it was for the benefit of farm workers, of course. She said, okay, so that's why you're doing it. But it, it they 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 keep me focused. They keep me grounded. They motivate me as uh, to, to work harder because they work so hard to put food on our tables. They are the people that that we need to be thinking about because without them, we wouldn't have the food that we have that we enjoy every day. Absolutely, and let's be real. The challenges that farm workers faced long before the COVID pandemic um, were extreme, right? Um, many workers don't face a lot of those challenges. You know, farm workers have a difficult job and have had it for many decades. And when the pandemic hit, um, we we were so blessed that we had supporters that donated. Uh, masks that we could distribute to farm workers and especially in the farms that uh, we don't have a contract because we knew that that's where they were going to need them. They gave us uh, uh, um, cleaning supplies and, and we were able to distribute that. But unfortunately, you know, I had the benefit of being able to work remotely. Many of us did. They didn't. And because also they're mostly undocumented, all the programs that were approved by the federal government excluded farm workers because they're not documented. And it was, you know, adding insult to injury. They're working in in some areas where the temperatures, as you know, uh, are getting hotter and hotter in Washington and, and Oregon, we're having temperatures right now of 110 degrees where that that wasn't heard of. And uh, we have been able to pass uh, laws that would protect farm workers now also, including Oregon and, and Washington, to protect them from the from the heat, the high temperatures, where they could have a rest period, where we can, they can ensure that workers are going to have fresh water, cold, fresh water as they work during the day where they're going to have a shaded area. So when they have lunch or they have a break, they have a shade, shaded area where they can rest for a few minutes. That has saved lives and will continue to save lives. But we, we need to add to that the fact that the fires the last few years have been um, tremendous. And farm workers continue to work in areas where this the the, the Air quality is is horrendous, but again, we have been able to receive donations of 
N95 masks that we have been able to distribute to those areas and making sure that the workers are aware of the rights and know that that wearing the mask is going to protect them some from the, the, the air quality. But it's not an easy job. It's, the challenges are there in our everyday. Um, and we, we represent, we, I have the honor of representing people who work hard, give it their, give it their all and, and are proud of the work that they do. But we want to make sure that these workers are recognized and they have the same, um, protections that other workers have. And when you have in places like Oregon, uh, the, the, the law says that a 12 year old can work in the fields. It's just, tell me any, any other, any other job that a 12 year old legally can do. It's just not, not fair. And the idea that, you know, a lot of us got to work from home, whereas they had to go in, who knows what kind of conditions they were traveling there in with other people, right? Couldn't isolate potentially either at work or in transportation or even at home. I mean, I also think about just some of the basic work of stooping or to be hunched over for any long period of time. So the struggles are definitely many. And so Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta had long been fighting for some basic things like water and, um, and bathrooms and such. Just the idea that climate crisis is compounding it all, plus the pandemic. I also think about the simple fact that we could be sitting down in the shade and still get heat exhaustion. It's yes. It's it's just unbelievable. Uh, heroes, truly, yes. to put food on our table. Uh, it, yes, and you know what? We had invited all 100 U.S. senators to work in the field. Just because we are also pushing an immigration bill that would give farm workers a path to legalization, the ability to go to their homes and visit relatives that they haven't seen in years and sometimes decades. And we had two senators that um, agreed to do it. Senator Alex Patilla from California and Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. And they did it. They worked in the fields for six hours. And I can tell you that at the end of the day, they were exhausted. Their backs were hurting. They they, they just, and we're talking about two senators then that understand that the, the, the farm workers uh, have a very important job in our country, not only to put for our tables, but it's a, our food security. And it gave them a different level of understanding for this workforce. And I think I'm the type of person that I, I say, you know, the only way you know how difficult it is, is when you have done it or when you take the time to listen to farm workers and learn from them their, their, their challenges, their, their, their uh, fights every day that they have to find the energy to work eight, 10, 12 hours sometimes. It's, it's, if, if you, if you don't talk to farm workers, no, not talk to farm workers, if you don't listen to farm workers or have worked in the fields, it is very difficult for anybody to truly understand, uh, how challenging this work is. The UFW is sponsoring a walk with farm workers, a pilgrimage for 24 days and 335 miles, where people will walk from Deleno, California to Sacramento. 
in this blazing heat starting on August 3rd. And it is for California Governor Gavin Newsom's signature on AB 2183, the California Ag Labor Relations Voting Choice Act. Late last year, a similar measure, AB 616, was vetoed by California Governor Gavin Newsom. And according to the UFW, it would have allowed workers union voting from home and allow them to cast a secret ballot in many of the same ways that California voters did in the recall election. Protests against this veto were staged on Cesar Chavez Day of this year. And uh, according to the UFW, Governor Gavin Newsom refused to meet with elected worker leaders, even when some marched to Newsom's personally owned winery. Why do the farm workers have to continuously sacrifice in order to get basic rights? What is the Voting Choice Act? Sarah, in California, when we vote for elected officials, when we voted for governor, when we voted in the recall, we do it in, in, a, in a way that we have options. You can do it in person if you want. You can get a, a mailing ballot if you want. You can ask somebody to help you fill out the ballot if you want. And you can ask somebody to deliver it to the mail or to the, to the uh, uh, um, voting uh, uh, places if you want to. So those are the things that we want for farm workers. Right now, the only way farm workers can vote whether or not they want union representation is at the employer's premises. Um, after farm workers were uh, 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 threatened, some of them fired for the support of a union. So having only that option does not promote participation. We have seen in California that having those options has increased the number of people that are able to vote in, in, in whatever election. Last year, we uh, introduced the bill, and during the recall time, you know what farm workers were doing? They cannot vote because many of them are undocumented, but they were knocking on doors to make sure that people would go and vote against the recall. And a week later, Gavin Newsom vetoed the bill. We are reintroducing the same bill, and unfortunately, every gain that we get, that we are able to obtain for farm workers, it is a fight. It is a battle. It takes years. And one of the ways that we as a union have been able to get atten- the attention of legislators, of supporters, and governors is by marching. Because it is something that Nobody else does. Nobody else has marched, you know, 300 miles, 400 miles, whatever it is, uh, to bring attention to the plight of farm workers. And Gavin Newsom knows this is last year and this year, this is the most important bill for farm workers. And we're going to make sure that our supporters, other farm workers, legislators know other labor unions know that we are going to sacrifice this much because that's what it takes to get uh, legislation in favor of farm workers. Nothing has been easy for, for, for them. So we're willing to go again 
to this extent to make sure that the governor understands that this is something that if if having options to vote for him, it is good enough for him, it should be good enough for farm workers. And even though the type of voting is different, right, uh, labor voting for um, in labor relations or voting for who's governor, the uh, idea is still the same choice uh, and the right to vote free of harassment. Also important to note that fairly early during the pandemic, Governor Newsom did come out with news about pandemic assistance for farm workers. He also appeared a calming spirit amidst the pandemic. But some notable vetoes on his part include at the end of 2020, Flashpoints reported that liberal Governor Newsom vetoed SB 1257, which would have given domestic workers the right to health and safety precautions and protections. We've been speaking with Teresa Romero, president of the United Farm Workers. The UFW is sponsoring a walk with farm workers, a pilgrimage for 24 days and 335 miles. The upcoming pilgrimage will retrace the route of the historic trek that Cesar Chavez led in 1966 from Del all the way to the state capital in Sacramento. And that was to place farm workers' grievances before the governor and the legislature. Please tell us about kickoff day. Tell us about this pilgrimage. Um, what can we expect along the travels? We are going to be starting on August 3rd in Delano at 40 Acres, which is a historic site. That's what Caesar uh, organized uh, for many years and continues to be a place where farm workers uh, uh, feel comfortable. At one point, even when we were, you know, trying to get farm workers vaccinated, they were afraid. What if when I give my information, they do something with it? The moment they knew that we were going to get uh, vaccines at 40 acres, thousands of farm workers get, came to get vaccinated. So that is a historic site. And we're going to be starting on August 3rd. We're going to, there is in our website, there's already a schedule from where to where each day. And we ask people to join us to make calls to the governor and say, you need to sign this bill. This is important for farm workers. They are the ones that are putting food on our table. And we want to make sure that as many emails, as many calls that our supporters can make. So he understands that this is something that not only the UFW and our movement wants, but also the consumers that are enjoying the, the fruits of, of this hard labor are uh, interested and are wanting to get these for farm workers. Who's actually marching? We have a, a, new, a number of farm workers that are going to be the, the um, full-time workers that are marching. I'm going to be one of those people. I'm going to be marching for full-time. And what we're doing is in, at every city that we're going to be get, getting to and we're going to, or we're going to be starting, many people join us just for that day, for half a day. But it is to, in solidarity uh, uh, for farm workers.
we have a committee that is working on having uh, at the end of the day, you know, a, a reception of these uh, marches that are sacrificing so much. People are going to be there. People are going to be bringing some entertainment in some cases. They want to feed us there. We want to make these a part of the community. They are the people that are benefiting from uh, uh, the sacrifices of the farm workers. How do you intend to try to keep people safe from the heat and even violence while while walking along the roads? You know, as you know, we're a nonviolent group. Marches that we've had, we have not experienced it. But we're uh, engaging every every police station in every town to let them know what we're doing. We're going to have people that are going to be knowledgeable. And if any of our workers, any of our marchers, any of our supporters are, are showing some signs of any heat illness, we would put them in a car, we would drive them for a mile in an air-conditioned place where they can recuperate themselves and make sure that they're safe. We're not putting anybody in, in danger. We are making sure that these marchers are going to be protected and that we're not going to, you know, we are the ones that fight for heat illness protections and we're going to make sure they're enforced. The kickoff for the Farm Workers March from Deleno to Sacramento for Governor Newsom's signature is going to be August 3rd at 8 a.m. at the 40-acre site in Deleno, California. It will start at 8 a.m. and I believe they're going to depart at 8.30. There'll be a Mass and Blessings at 8 a.m. and um, all walkers will depart at 8.30. So August 3rd from Deleno to August 26th to Sacramento. And there is a map on their website that will tell you all of the different stops and journeys. Um, and, of course, their website will tell you more about the overall process and history of the UFW. Uh, you know, I, I keep thinking, like, how many times do they need to make a pilgrimage for the same things, you know, over and over, mm-hmm. the same the same things that countless other workers and job fields already enjoy? I also think about the beauty of this, but it is a a very large sacrifice. One, they are putting themselves out there publicly. Two, the heat is intense. And we think about all of these different sacrifices that people make for spiritual reasons and here for basic human rights and and a right to, to vote without intimidation and harassment. I want to thank you so much, Teresa Romero, for joining us, and uh, Flashpoints will be there along the pilgrimage. Is there anything else you'd like people to know or or how they can get more information? They can go to our website. They can call our offices if they want more information. We are wanting them to be a part of this because, like you said, this is historic, and I want to thank Flashpoints for giving us the opportunity to talk about it, for you being there and being part of history, Sarah, because we once again are doing something that we have to work harder, that we have to sacrifice more to get any gains for farm workers when it is time that they're treated like any other worker in this country. Thank you so much, Teresa Romero. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you very much for really doing this for farm workers. All right. Thank you. And we'll we'll see you on the road. We'll see you on the third. <laughs> Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. For Flashpoints, I'm Sarah Blanco. 
The Biden administration says it will be ending the brutal and controversial Trump era remain in Mexico policy that forces asylum seekers to stay in Mexico until their cases move through the courts. This failed policy subjects asylum seekers who have already suffered from months or even years of life and death conditions to further threats of violence and death. Uh, we speak again to Camilo Perez Pustillo about the impact of this policy and what the change might mean for those who continue to apply for asylum. Well, there's a lot to talk uh, about, Camilo, but let's start there. Uh, do you think the administration is serious? And, and what are the multiple implications? Remind people what the policy is. Yeah, I mean, I think the first, first question, Dennis, and thank you for opening up this space again, is, you know, is the Biden administration serious? Well, serious about what? I mean, what's clear is, especially with the midterms coming up and especially with, um, you know, the, the Trump, uh, you know, coalition out there continuing to, uh, to push the drumbeat against migrants as a central part of its appeal and its platform, you know, the, at the heart of its pitch for November, the Biden administration has basically been in retreat since it took office as to issues of migrant justice and justice at the border. There's been some symbolic steps that the administration has taken that, you know, have to be recognized as such, as steps in the right direction, but that are inadequate and insufficient. One of those is its reiterated intention to end the Remain in Mexico program that was created by the Trump administration. And I think, you know, the Biden administration, I think, has been sincere about that, but they've been blocked by the Trumpist courts, just like they're blocked electorally by the Trumpist message of, you know, immigrants being the danger and the invasion and the problem. So I, I think, you know, what we have to recognize is that presidential will or executive power is not enough. The bottom line is the courts in states like Texas, and of course we've seen it with the abortion issue as well, um, the, the, the courts are in the hands of Trump appointed judges who will do and have done everything they can to prevent even the most positive actions of the Biden administration with all of its, uh, you know, uh, 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 timidity around these questions. Even the best actions can be blocked in the courts. That's what's happened with Remain in Mexico. The Biden administration has said they want to end it. The courts have not permitted that to happen. The Supreme Court finally ruled the right way a couple of months ago, and we talked about that. But now the case got sent down back to Texas, back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is what governs the you know jurisdiction of Texas. And we can't trust either the lower court, the trial court in Texas, which is a Trump judge, and we can't trust the Fifth Circuit, which is full of Trump judges who form the majority there. So they are going to do everything in their power to prevent the decision by the by the Biden administration to end remain in Mexico from actually being implemented. But we have to keep our eye on the ball. All of that is ultimately a distraction because it only involves a small percentage of the migrants who are being turned away. The Remain in Mexico program has basically been inactive since Biden took office. That's the good news. The bad news is what the, what the Biden administration has not terminated is the continuing use of Title 42. Title 42 was also imposed by Trump. It was imposed at the beginning of the pandemic. It continues in force. 
and it's pursuant to Title 42, which basically declares a public health emergency at the border, even though the CDC, right, today or yesterday said that COVID is not a threat anymore, right, and that, you know, all kinds of measures are being rolled back. Still, as far as migrants are concerned, COVID and the pandemic are being used as a pretext by the Biden administration implementing a Trump policy to exclude, as far as we know, approximately 1.7 million instances have been recorded of migrants turned back. 1.7 million. That's compared to, you know, a few thousand maybe still affected by Remain in Mexico. So, you know, yeah, the good news is Remain in Mexico, the Biden administration has said they want to end. Let's see if the courts permit them to end it. But what the Biden administration has not yet done is end exclusion pursuant to Title 42. And it's pursuant to Title 42 that we have those plane loads of Haitians, for example, and of Colombians and of Guatemalans and of Hondurans and of Brazilians who are being sent back sometimes in daily flights. In fact, this all connects to Colombia because in the last three months, it's been Colombian migrants towards the top of the list of the largest number of migrants sent back on daily flights. I was able to confirm this during the last few days that I was in Colombia for the inauguration of the new progressive government there. One of the top issues on the agenda of that government and of whatever comes in Brazil, regardless of what happens with Lula, et cetera, et cetera, is are they going to continue cooperating with the U.S. and taking these flights, these return flights, full of deportees? What are they going to do? The supposedly progressive governments, let's see what happens in Colombia, let's see what happens in Brazil. What are they going to do to defend the rights of their own migrants, given the Biden administration's continuing hesitancy? We are speaking with Camila Perez-Bustillo. He is uh, the executive director for the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. He's just back from Colombia. And I want to ask you uh, to talk more about what you were doing there. And there's some pretty tough stuff happening there. Maybe you can put uh, Colombia in the context of uh, the immigration struggle. Colombia is a country that has had 75 years of armed conflict, of a series of internal wars after another, all of them promoted by U.S. policy. Beginning with the Cold War in 1947-1948, that was essentially the beginning of what came to be called in the rest of Latin America national security doctrine. That was tested first in Colombia. And then extended in 1954 to Guatemala, and then we know the rest of the story in the 60s and 70s and 80s as it spread to Central America and the Southern Cone. That's where all those military dictatorships came from. The beginning of that process was in Colombia. So first it was in the name of the Cold War, then it was in the name of the so-called drug war, and then post 9-11, it was in the name supposedly of the war against terror or narco-terror, as it was called. But Colombia has always been the laboratory. Colombia has been the U.S.'s best 
friend and has been essentially the U.S. aircraft carrier in the heart of Latin America. Colombia has been essentially the Israel of Latin America. That's how we have to understand it, playing the same strategic role in the Western Hemisphere, supporting U.S. interests as Israel has been in the Middle East and in Asia. And so what we have to understand is that's, those are the stakes that are uh, in play right now as, a, as Colombia's first progressive government takes office. It took office on August 7th, this past Sunday. I had the honor of being there as an invited international guest as part of an international delegation. I was there representing the National Lawyers Guild but there were many of us there from popular movements and from uh, you know, human rights organizations in the U.S. and from throughout the world. There were very notable, sizable, and participatory delegations from Africa, from Asia, from throughout Latin America, from the U.S. All of us were there to tell the new government that we will be standing with popular movements in Latin America to continue to insist that their demands be addressed and satisfied by the new government because that's what it pledged to do in its campaign. That's especially what its vice president now stands for, Francia Marquez, who represents these popular movements in the coalition that now governs Colombia. Uh, the president himself, of course, is a former insurgent guerrilla commander from the M-19 movement. So we also want to um, hold him accountable to his history and to his rhetoric. And what we want to make sure, and this is something he pledged in his inaugural address, which was historic, was he pledged to do away with the drug war to end the drug war that's been imposed by the U.S., which has cost tens of thousands of lives in Colombia and in Mexico. He talked about almost a million lives that have been lost thanks to U.S. drug war policy if you put together Colombia and Mexico because they've been the two key laboratories for that policy. But also it means for the first time, the U.S. and Colombia developing relations as equals. And that means an end to continuing U.S. terror on Colombian territory, which has meant the targeted killings of hundreds of peaceful human rights activists in the last three years and during the last few months. You know, <laughs> Mexico, uh, with the hope with the new leadership there has been a real profound disappointment uh, in the context of all these issues where does Mexico come in now and don't don't they need to really play a role in transforming uh, regional policies and immigration policies because right now they're they're playing a real negative role and they seem to be dancing uh, with death with the United States government Absolutely. You know, you know, Mexico and its president, they talk a good game in terms of the rhetoric of support for Cuba. And, you know, they, they took a critical stance towards the uh, U.S.-backed summit in L.A. recently and essentially boycotted it and helped kill that summit, let's say. Um, I mean, I think that there are positive aspects to that rhetoric, but that's about as far as it goes. At the same time as there's that kind of you know, Latin Americanist, nationalist, kind of vaguely anti-imperialist rhetoric 
In practice, Mexico has been the U.S.'s best friend in the repression and persecution and imposition of terror against migrants. And what, the, what Mexico has committed, that same government that is so eloquent in defending, for example, uh, Cuba's rights to sovereignty, has given up its own sovereignty and has essentially turned Mexican territory into a death zone for migrants in transit. Following U.S. Talk, policy, the, talk a deal about cut talk with, with the Trump administration, yes. and that continues now with Biden. Talk about exactly what that means in real terms. I know that uh, you obviously you're still working with witness at the border, uh, and they're responding to the continuing um, violence that are facing thousands of people fleeing violence and meeting uh, up with more of it. Um, uh, Talk a little bit about witness at the border and what they're planning in response to ongoing violence. We're asking you, uh, witness at the border, to join us on a pilgrimage for border justice, a journey for justice along the full length of the U.S.-Mexico border, beginning in Brownsville at the eastern extreme and concluding at the sea in San Isidro between San Diego and Tijuana. Let's remember California is a border state. People forget that. California is a border state. We're going to be traveling the length of that border beginning December 2nd for approximately two weeks. We already have an initial itinerary. There might be some adjustments. But the key thing is this. We need all of you to join us to continue to insist that the Biden administration's hesitant and timid and half-baked policies as to migrant justice are not enough, that the be an immediate end to Title 42, that the system of political asylum be restored, that there be an imperative in defense of human rights at the border as to each individual migrant who presents themselves there. And so we are going to be there crying for justice in the desert throughout the border region. We ask you to join us and to support this initiative. Come find concrete, detailed information at our Facebook page for Witness at the Border. We have over 17,000 members of that Facebook group. And come see us also at our website, witnessattheborder.org. But again, what we're talking about is a pilgrimage for border justice, a journey for justice, a caravan for human rights and justice at the border, beginning December 2nd and culminating around December 16th, 17th. There will be several key stops along the way where you can join us at any point along the route for any period of time that you can. We're gonna be asking, of course, for support from you, Dennis, and from others to spread the word about this. We're gonna be reporting to you directly from on site as we have before about what unfolds as this journey begins and, and, and continues. And the key thing is at places like Brownsville, um, at places like Uvalde, like Del Rio, where the Haitian migrants were corralled with reins as if they were whips inflicted on enslaved people again. At Southern Arizona, at El Paso, um, along the way, and then culminating at the sea 
where the border wall cuts cruelly into the Pacific Ocean. Join us, stand with us, witness at the border.org and the Facebook group, and we will be on the move in defense of peoples in movement beginning December 2nd in Brownsville. Now, one final question I want to ask you about, Camillo. Um, we last we spoke, we had the honor of being with Martina Spada uh, to commemorate the slaughter uh, in El Paso, uh, and the violence is getting worse. I mean, I'm thinking today as I think about what's been going on. If a guy like happened today had the nerve and the outrage behind him to attack an FBI office in Cincinnati because of what he considered the unfair Trump uh, uh, treatment of Trump. If he will, if these folks are attacking the FBI, uh, are you worried that we're about to see a major escalation against brown and black people? You know, what we've seen, there's a report that just came out from the Southern Poverty Law Center five years after the Unite the Right rally that we all remember in Charlottesville, right? Five years ago. And what that report highlights and what reports from the Department of Homeland Security itself that we talked about previously on your program, what they highlight is that the new turn in the kind of violence that was promoted in Charlottesville, the new turn among the neo-Nazi movement and the white supremacist and white nationalist movements in the U.S. is to focus on the border and on migrants as the targets within the framework of that rhetoric about an invasion that's been promoted by Governor Abbott in Texas, notably, and by Ted Cruz there, of course, but also by this whole theory and rhetoric and discourse around the so-called great replacement, which is what drove, of course, not only the killer in El Paso, but most recently the killer in Buffalo. And so we know that that rhetoric is targeting now people of color within the U.S. as the objects of rage and of violence. So if we were concerned about Unite the Right five years ago in Charlottesville, as we should have been, and many were present there that I'm sure are listening, the key thing is we have to understand that the next Charlottesville, sadly, will be the next El Paso or the next Buffalo. It will be violence at the border against migrants being targeted or against migrant communities elsewhere in the country who are being targeted through this rhetoric as invaders and as an alien force that needs to be eliminated. We're talking well, about migrant genocide. That's the lesson of El Paso. Uh, absolutely. And we're talking about it with Camila Perez-Bastillo. We're out of time, but I, I do want to mention, we're going to come back and talk about this, but I know you know that there's now what appears to be a death squad operating in New Mexico. There's been, what, three or four Muslim men gunned down, targeted in New Mexico. In, I'm sorry, in Albuquerque, in New Mexico. Right. Uh, and, you know, this is really just uh, a a signal that things are going to get a lot worse. We're going to leave it there, but obviously we appreciate the incredibly important information. Camila Perez-Bastillo, please stay in touch. We'll talk to you soon.